land and get a taste of what the times were like when he comes on the scene. First Kings chapter 17, verse 1, in the New International Version tells us, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. He suddenly appears. Like a lightning bolt out of heaven, in a dark hour of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, Elijah appears. To understand his greatness, we got to understand the times in which he lived. My favorite, old, my favorite American history person is Abraham Lincoln. And one of the reasons I really appreciate the leadership of the 16th president of our nation is because he led the United States when the states were far from united. And we can only imagine the depth of turmoil and the anguish of inner spirit he must have experienced as he sought to be the leader who brought our nation back together. They tell us that uh, there would come Wednesdays when he needed to get away and to just concentrate on the goodness of God. And they would escort him and President Lincoln would go to the prayer meeting, the Wednesday night service of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. He would there try to find solace and quiet and relief from the pressures that he faced as the leader of our nation. So his presence would not uh, disrupt the service. They would always make arrangements for President Lincoln to sit in the pastor's office just off the sanctuary area. Usually there, would be an, there was an aide who would accompany Mr. Lincoln, and on one particular occasion, one young man was really interested in watching how President Lincoln responded as he listened to the service. As Dr. Hurley would speak the words and preach the sermon, the young man just made mental notes of what the reaction of the leader of the United States were. When the sermon was over and the benediction pronounced, as Mr. Lincoln got up to leave, the aide asked him, Mr. President, did you like the sermon? Lincoln responded, I thought it was well thought through, powerfully delivered, and very eloquent. Then you thought it was a great sermon. No, no. It failed. Because Dr. Gurley did not ask us to do something great. And this evening, as we begin to journey through 1 Kings chapter 17, as we begin to focus on this individual named Elijah, I want you to understand up front tonight, the invitation is going to be for you to do something great. Now please understand, it may not reach the headlines of the local paper. You may not receive any notoriety by having NBC4 come up and do a special on you for the 6 o'clock news. Please understand that the greatness that we are calling to, the world may not even take notice of. In fact, what you'll find is that when you do this great thing that we are going to be talking about tonight, the world may even demonstrate some animosity for you. What we are going to see is that in his era, Elijah lived against the flow of his day. 
And my friends, what we're going to discover is just as Elijah was called of God to live against the flow of his day, so God today is looking for people. He's looking for individuals. He's looking for families. He's looking for churches that are willing to live against the flow of our day. To fully appreciate Elijah, we got to realize what the times were like when he stood up for God. Let's notice the flow of his day. There are words, four words, that demonstrate and summarize the context of life's flow in Israel when Elijah shows up. They are four ugly words. The words are idolatry, hatred, conspiracy, and murder. If you are familiar with your Old Testament history, you're aware of the fact that Samuel anoints Saul as the first king in the nation of Israel. And the historical writers tell us that for a period of 120 years, Israel only had three kings. Saul ruled for about 40 years. David ruled for about 40 years. And Solomon also ruled for approximately 40 years. And when Solomon dies, the nation splits in two. We have the south and we have the north. The south becomes known as Judah. And we find that King Rehoboam is the first king of this southern kingdom. The other, the northern part is referred to in the Old Testament as Israel. And what we've got to get into our thinking, my friends, is that Elijah is God's prophet. Elijah is God's spokesman in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, to fully grasp what we're going to find in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, we've got to do about seven or eight minutes of Old Testament history. So I hope that you have your Bibles open to 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, and I hope that as we make note of the kings who served prior to Elijah's arrival as the spokesman of God, and the king and queen who ruled during Elijah's earthly ministry so that you and I can get a taste of what's going on. First of all, in chapter 12 of 1 Kings, verses 26 through 30, we discover that Jeroboam is the first king of the northern kingdom. And in verses 26 through 30, it says there that he thinks to himself... Unfortunately, maybe you can relate to that statement. He did not seek the wisdom of God. He did not seek to find out the direction of God. He just simply wrapped himself in himself and allowed himself to be the focus of his thoughts. And though he seeks advice, it tells us there that he's worried that the people that he is leading may go to uh, Jerusalem to offer sacrifices there and to worship there. And so what he does is to be introduce idolatry into the northern kingdom. He sets up two golden calves, twice as bad as what we see in the Old Testament story of Moses and Aaron. He sets up two golden calves and says, here are your gods. Here are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. He introduces idolatry into the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. In chapter 13, we see God's amazing grace. 
God sends a prophet and talks to the king, Jeroboam, about his sin. But he pays no attention to God's warning that is spoken through the prophet. In fact, it says there in verse number 33 of 1 Kings 13, that even after this, even after he was warned by the prophet of God, he did not change his evil ways. Then the writer tells us what's going on in the southern kingdom for a couple chapters. And he picks up for us on the northern kingdom in chapter 15, verses 27, 28, and 29. I hear those pages moving. That's fantastic. Verse 27, uh, verse 20, yeah, verse verse 25, excuse me, tells us that Nadab is the son of Jeroboam, and he becomes king of Israel. And verse 26 tells us that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. He walks in the way of his father. Verse 27 tells us that the third king is named Basha. And we read there that he conspires against King Nadab and murders him. Understand idolatry? Hatred, conspiracy, and murder. And what we're going to discover, my friends, as we look at a few verses here, is that the Old Testament historical writer is going to tell us that idolatry and hatred and conspiracy and murder, sin, always gives birth to more sin. It just happens. It's, in fact, that's the story of the Old Testament. The Old Testament in those 39 books, the big thing that God wants us to understand, the big idea, the big picture that God wants us to see is that sin always gives birth to more sin. We read in chapter 16, verse 8, that the next king is named Elah. And what we find as we come on down through there about verse 15 is that one of his leaders, Zimri, plots against the king and destroys, murders the ruler. And what's really interesting, Zimri goes to all this trouble to take over the kingdom and to have the king assassinated. And what we read there in verse number 15, that after he does that, he rules for a total of seven days. One week. The pattern of life in Israel is idolatry and hatred and conspiracy and murder, giving birth to more idolatry, more hatred, more conspiracy, and more murder. In chapter 16, verse number 25, we have described for us The next king, his name is Amri. And in verse number 26, it tells us that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more. In my Bible, I've underscored that word. He sinned more than all of those before him. Chapter 16, verse 29. We have the seventh king. His name... Ahab. It tells us there in verse number 29 that he is the son of Amri and he becomes king of Israel 
And he reigns in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. And if we stop there, we think, oh, praise be to God. Finally, some stability in the nation. No more of this one-week rule, but 22 years. No, look at what it says in verse number 30. Ahab, son of Amri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than all those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. It is a downward spiral. It's idolatry and hatred and conspiracy and murder and sin, giving birth to more sin. I mean, the nation is in a downward spiral. And then here comes this king named Ahab, and he rules for 22 years. And not only that, but he marries Jezebel. And my friends, if we had time to look further into the story, we would discover that though King Ahab sat on the throne, Jezebel wore the pants and called the shots. And if we had time to look at her life, we would discover that she has all the characteristics of someone who is demon-possessed. Satan rules her life. And so what we have is 60 years of this anti-God atmosphere. When you get to the end of 1 Kings chapter 16, there is an anti-God atmosphere that fills the nation of Israel. And I so appreciate the leadership of Amy and the worship team. They led us in tremendous worship as we anticipate what this passage is going to say to us. It's, Lord, Holy Spirit, fill this place. Because we need the reality of the true and living God to fill this place. Because, my friends, unfortunately, just as an anti-God atmosphere filled the nation of Israel in this particular era, if you haven't noticed, we live in a very anti-Christian world right now. And out of the darkness, verse seven, chapter 17, verse 1, Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead shows up. Out of the darkness, there's this lightning bolt that flashes on the scene. Notice what the Old Testament writer tells us about this individual. First of all, it tells us that he came from Tishbe. His home is Tishbe. Anybody ever been to Tishbe? Anybody ever heard of Tishbe? Yeah, it's a, it's a seemingly very insignificant city. It, in fact, historical writers tell us that Tishbe was an unsophisticated village east of the Jordan River. To put it in terminology that you and I might, might relate to, it was this town on the other side of the tracks. It was noted for people, the Tishbites, who were not impressive from the world's perspective. They were coarse, they were crude, and the world considered them 
very, very insignificant and unimportant. Their crudeness led to the fact that if you were going to have a dignified setting, if you were going to have a really positive, really people-honoring atmosphere at your house, that kind of a party, make sure that no tish bites were on the guest list. They, but he's, he's from Tishby. That's one thing we learn. A second thing we learn is that he shows up and he gives a statement of faith. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel is whom I serve. Isn't that a tremendous statement of faith? He says, I want you to know something. The Lord God of Israel is alive and well, and I serve him. Now, don't forget the context. Don't forget that Jezebel and Ahab have established Baal worship and Asherah poles as the politically correct worshiping gods that were to be served and honored during this time. In the day when this gentleman stands up and says, I serve the true and living God, in his day, the popular God, God was not Jehovah, but it was Baal. In fact, when it came time for the false harvest to be celebrated, if you were going to praise a God because of the goodness, you didn't thank the living God Jehovah. You thank the fertility God, Baal. Elijah shows up and all by himself, he stands up and gives to us a sterling example of someone who was willing to stand alone. I know that it's not popular. I know that Baal is the God that's politically correct. But I want you to know that I serve the true and living God. My God is alive and he, I am serving him. It's his statement of faith. Now, what's really impressive, it's one thing to give a statement of faith. It's quite another to develop a lifestyle of faith. Well, how do you know he had a lifestyle of faith? In the Old Testament, only six chapters describe Elijah's life. And in the six chapters that describe Elijah's life, nine times we read, the Lord said something, and Elijah got up and went. Elijah did, or Elijah was on his way. Nine times God said, here's what I want you to do. Here are my instructions. You have made the statement of faith that I am the true and living God and that you are going to serve me. And since you are serving me, here's what I want you to do. Just real quickly, notice with me. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here. Verse 5, Elijah did what the Lord said. Chapter 17 Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. Verse 10, so he went to Zarephath. Chapter 18, verse 1, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go present yourself to Ahab. 
verse 2. So Ahab went to present himself, or excuse me, Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. In chapter 19, notice verse number 15. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. So Elijah, verse 19, went from there. If we had time to jump over to 2 Kings, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, An angel of the Lord said, Go up and meet king of Samaria's messengers. Verse 4, Elijah went. At chapter 1, verse 15, An angel of the Lord said, Go down. So Elijah got up and went down. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 2, 4, and 6. God says, I want you to go to Bethel. He went. I want you to go to Jericho. He went. Verse number 6, I want you to go to the Jordan. So Elijah and Elisha went. My friends, please understand, as important as it is for you and I to make a statement of faith, the real proof of our faith is not in a statement that we make, but it's in the lifestyle that we develop. God said, so he did. When was the last time you allowed God to tell you what you needed to do? When was the last time that you got so into the word of God and so filled with the reality of the truth of the kingdom that God used the word and his spirit and the good saintly people around you and said, yeah, go for it. Now, we've just spent about uh, 17 minutes and 27 seconds in Bible study. Man, we tore, we tore apart verse 1 of 1 Kings 17. We took time to get the context. We are really good expositional students of the Word. You know what I found in my life? If Bible study alone transformed me to be more Christ-like, wow, would I be a powerful testimony to him. But you know what? Bible study, more information, without application, leads to no transformation. And so, in light of what we find about this individual who suddenly appears on the scene, who suddenly flashes out into the public like a bolt of lightning in the, one of the darkest hours of the northern kingdom, let's notice some truths about this life and what God is doing. Truth number one is this. God is searching for people who choose to live against the flow of their world. God is looking down to Union County, and he's looking down upon the Church of the Nazarene. And on this Monday night, the first day of May 2017, God is looking down, and he says, is there someone who's willing to go and live against the flow of our day? In the ninth century B.C., God was looking for someone, and he found Elijah. Three centuries later, 6th century B.C., God looks down and 
through the prophet Ezekiel, it tells us that he was once again looking for someone to live against the flow of the day, someone to stand in the gap. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 23 through 30, we find out that uh, there was a time of drought being experienced by the people of God. The lack of rain reflected a spiritual drought. There was an emptiness. There was a dryness that permeated the nation of Israel. Verse 25 tells us that the government leaders were conspiring. They were devouring people. They were taking the treasures of families. They were destroying the families. And we thought politics and what was going on in the government world only takes place in our era. No, it was taking place back then too. Verse 26 Ezekiel says the spiritual leaders were watering down God's truth. No longer any distinction between that which was holy and that which is profane. Verse 28, preachers would stand and say, God has said. In reality, the prophet says they hadn't heard God say a word in days, months, weeks. But they were proclaiming that they had heard from God, but they hadn't heard him. In fact, verse 29, when it came to the streets... People were just uh, practicing extortion and robbing each other and oppressing the unfortunate. I mean, it was just an ugly scene. There was very much this anti-God, anti-holy atmosphere that permeates the situation. And in verse 30, it tells us, God says, I looked. I looked for one person. Just one person who would build the wall and stand before me in the gap, but I found none. God looks for people who will choose to live against the flow of our day. Next time you go to pray for our community, Whenever you bow before God about the whole act, we talked about the harvest last night. And my friends, the next time you individually or in a small group or a congregation pray to God about the people and the anti-Christ atmosphere that seems to permeate our world, my friends, please don't list for God everything is wrong with the world. He already knows. See, what he's looking for is not a list of all the sins of the world. He's looking for someone to stand in the gap. God is looking for people who will choose to live against the flow of our day. Lesson number two is this. The people God uses are often very, very surprising. As I read through 1 Kings 12, as I moved over to 1 Kings chapter 15, as I read through 1 Kings chapter 16, I kept waiting for God to raise up this mighty army, squash those evil kings, and straighten everything out. But you know when he moves, you know what he does? He sends Elijah, the Tishbite, from Tishbe. One person. Now, did you notice that in the NIV, the editors say he's the Tishbite from Tishbe? That's wasted ink. 
I mean, I've preached in Texas a while back. I did not say to anyone, hi, I'm Bob the Ohioan from Ohio. So why would the editors, as they translate this scene, point out the fact that he's a Tishbite from Tishbe? I believe that they are trying to catch the essence of what the Old Testament historical writer is saying. God doesn't raise up this mighty army to take on this dark scene. You know what he does? He raises up one person from Tishbe. Oh, yeah, he's a Tishbite. Can you believe it? And it doesn't say he went to Bible college. He didn't go to seminary. God is looking for people. And the people that he uses are often very, very surprising. Tony Campolo, a sociologist, retired a teacher at Eastern College out in Pennsylvania, tells this story. He describes how he was invited to be a counselor at a junior high camp in Philadelphia. There are going to be 150 junior hires who come together, and so the camp staff asked if Dr. Campolo would be willing to give one week to come and serve as a counselor to 150 junior hires. He says, after that junior high camp of 150 junior hires, he understands what purgatory is all about. <laughs> That's what he said, young people, not me. <laughs> He describes how of the 150 campers who are part of this camp, there was one young man named Johnny. And Johnny was physically challenged. His physical challenge resulted in his fact, the fact that he could not talk very clearly and he walked with an abnormal gait. And Mr. Campolo tells how the other 149 junior hires thought that Johnny was just the source of some good jokes. And they thought Johnny was the funniest thing. When Johnny would walk across the campgrounds, some of those junior high boys, because the girls would giggle, would line up behind Johnny and imitate his awkward movements. Campolo tells how one day he was seated and uh, over there by where the, where the water fountain was, and as someone came up to get a drink of water, Johnny was there, and the, the, the junior high boy said, Johnny, what time is it? He had no desire to know what time it was. He was just poking fun at Johnny. Campolo tells that the climax of his frustration and his anger occurs on Wednesday night, halfway through the camp. On Wednesday night... Johnny's cabin was told that tomorrow morning was their day to lead in the 8 o'clock chapel devotion before breakfast. And what his cabin mates did was to elect Johnny to bring the devotional thought. 8 o'clock, 149 campers, plus Johnny and all the staff come into the chapel. The leader of the camp introduced Johnny to the camp. Campolo says he crawled to the front, took his place behind the microphone. <clears throat> no. Heard a chuckle over here, a couple people laughing over there. He said this. 
Jesus loves me and I love Jesus. Now, I took about 15 seconds. Johnny, because he was so anxious and so nervous, took 15 minutes to say, Jesus loves me, and I love Jesus. Campolo said that when Johnny was done, it was so quiet, and he was seated on the first row. He said, I just had to sneak a peek of what was going on. And he said, as I turned... I saw 149 junior hires with tears running down their faces. And he said, you know what? Revival broke out during that camp. And he said, you got to understand something. For three days, the camp leadership had tried to bring revival to that camp of junior hires. They had brought in the reigning Miss Pennsylvania. And in her beauty and grace... And all the good things that she had, she said, Jesus has been so good to me and he'll be good to you. And all the teens went, Ugh. On Wednesday, they brought in a member of the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team. And he told how Jesus improved his batting average. And all the teens went, Ugh. He says, you see, on this particular situation, God didn't want to use a beauty queen or a baseball player. He wanted to use, from the world's perspective, an insignificant junior high boy who, with all he could muster, say, Jesus loves me, and I love Jesus. Young people, don't get confused by our world's way of thinking. Be successful and then you can bless others for the cause of Christ. The truth is, you can bless others for the cause of Christ. But you might be that seemingly insignificant one that never gets the notoriety of the newspapers or any recognition. But you know what? God wants to use you. He built you the way that you're built. He's put you together. And he just wants you to just believe how much he loves you and go around telling and showing others that you love him too. God's looking for people who will live against the flow. Lesson number two, the people that God uses are often very, very surprising. One final truth. God uses people who are completely his. Have you ever noticed how we in 21st century America love to compartmentalize our lives? We have our family life. We have our work life. We have our school life. We have our recreational life. We have our social life. We have our private life. And we have our church life if there's any time left. Come on. 
I mean, you know, I, well, you know, we've got work and we've got the family. And please understand that every single thing that I said there is very, very important. They are all aspects of our lives. But my friends, please understand that when we make Jesus Christ Lord of our lives, if we allow our lives to be like Elijah's, in which we serve the true and living God, there's no more compartmentalization. He's Lord of all of our lives. And he permeates every aspect. And we're talking 24-7, 365 days a year. It's all about God. We don't have to pray, when Lord, you be with me today at work. No, he's already there. We don't have to ask him to be involved in our lives. He is there. And rather than compartmenting our lives, we just give our lives completely into his hands and we become aware of him and we become aware of his kingdom. And you know what's so amazing? I get to go down to work now. And as I go to work, I no longer work from seven to three to get a paycheck because I'm aware of the fact that God is working even there where I, where I am employed. I get to go down there, represent God, and they give me a check to do missionary work. Isn't that great? Come on. Young people, you get to go to school. You get to represent Christ down there at the school. You get to interact with people and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ by the way you look and the way, not the way you look, by the way you act. And by the way, you interact with people. And you know what? When you turn 18 and you completed 12 years, they give you a diploma. You get a free education while you're doing missionary work. Really? Oh, well, I got my... And I got... He's Lord of everything. And you'll never know what it is to be a true follower of Jesus Christ until you're aware of his being present and involved in all of life. In my pocket, Let's see if I can find it here, I have a set of keys. If you look closely, Pastor will testify. There's actually three rings there, right, Pastor? Three rings there. Symbolic of my life. Let's just see here. Here's, here are some house keys. Uh, representative of my family. See, it's one thing to have a house. It's another thing to have a home. A house is a building. A home is a relationship. And so that key represents my wife, Charlene, Eric and Ashley, our three grandkids. Oh, by the way, thanks for bringing them into the church. Thank you. Thanks for taking care of my kids. Thank you. And there's Sharice and Jonathan, Titus, and little Macy, who'll be born in July. Family, I love them. Got a key to a 2011 Honda Odyssey. It gets serviced at Wayne's Garage. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you have a Honda and need some, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Eric works there. That's why. Okay, it's symbolic of the possessions 
of my life. Got another Honda. 260,000 miles, still going strong. I'm going for 300, and if I get to there, I'm going to go 350. Then there's this one key. It says office on it. You see, I, I'm a half-time pastor, lead pastor of the church in Nazarene, Tiffin, Ohio. It's, it's my job. Three very important things. You know what I have to do every once in a while? Make sure that my family hasn't become my idol. And I've still left them on the altar. I need to make sure that I own my possessions and my possessions don't own me. I have to make sure that God is still very much intimately involved in my employment. Well, of course he's in here. You're a pastor. There are a lot of unspiritual things that are done in pastoral ministry. And the pastor said, <laughs> See, don't, don't get caught in this clergy laity thing. We are the people of God. And the people of God are the people who say, it may be an antichrist world, but we serve, we believe in the true and living God, and he's the one who controls our lives. We trust him. If you're like me, every once in a while, I want to pick these up and maybe try and handle them myself. Maybe you're trying to fix your children. Worried about the direction they're headed. I appreciate your concern. But leave them on the altar. Judy, Luke, and Bill shared with me last night. Nine years ago, As I taught from John 4, I gave a little card that said 111 at 1 o'clock for one minute, pray for one person. And she shared how for about seven or eight years, she used that as a reminder to pray for Isaac. And when she told me that he came home a couple, about, a month, or about a year ago, I was tempted not to come back for the rest of the revival. I was filled for just from that. You go seven or eight years of praying for your kid. It's real easy to try and pick it up and work it out. The songwriter says it so well. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. No manipulation. He's always a gentleman. See, it says that he's looking for people who will choose to live against the flow of 
of our world. He won't make us. Now, it's our loss. Life will never be fulfilling. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him and on Sunday morning enjoy his presence. In his presence, daily live. That's the invitation tonight. I'm not going to assume I know how you will respond to that. For some, it may be simply taking the hand of a friend or your spouse who's seated next to you as we sing, and just by grasping hands, you're saying to each other, let's make him Lord of our home again. For others, you may take the sign of the universal sign of surrender, which is, For some, you may sense the leading of the Spirit to come forward, have a seat here, kneel. But as we sing through this tremendous song of invitation, would you respond to him? Would you just give him everything about yourself? You may not even know what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You've heard sermons about him. You've heard Sunday school lessons about him. But you've never experienced what it is to become a child of God. Just surrender who you are to him tonight. Say yes to him. And by faith, you'll become a child of God. You may have just grown a little ragged and a little bored with Christianity. You may have taken the keys back off the altar. Tonight's the night in a fresh new way say Jesus it's all yours respond as we sing could we oh to Jesus I surrender all to him I freely give I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender 
we, um, we do give you praise for who you are. Your love for us, your care for us. And, and truly tonight, Lord, as we sense your presence and, Lord, your convicting power, uh, we sense not just your judgment, but your love for us. God disciplines those he loves. So, Lord, I pray that we'll take these words tonight and we'll think about them, we'll ponder them. Lord, as we, as we entered into this revival session and season, we, we, we come into together to, to let your words uh, permeate our lives and to, to dwell on them and think on them. And so, Lord, I pray even tonight we will consider whether we serve, whether we live for a living God. You are a living God. You're present and you're alive and you're moving. And you ask us, your people, to submit our lives to you. So, Lord, we pray that your kingdom will break through fresh and new in our lives. That as your spirit speaks, even as we leave this place, we'll not, uh, we'll not stutter or stop, but we will follow you wholeheartedly. You're worthy. You're worthy. And, Lord, may we live true to the words of Romans 12.1. May we become living sacrifices. It's the only reasonable thing we can do. And Lord, as we become living sacrifices, giving our lives fully to you, standing in the gap, may you change us, may you transform our mind, renew our mind, and allow us to think in different ways and see our lives in a different perspective. Now, Lord, be with this congregation who've gathered here tonight. May your Holy Spirit continue to speak and may we continue to listen. And Lord, as we gather back uh, tomorrow on Wednesday, Lord, may you speak once again. In Jesus' name we pray. We'll be receiving an offering as you leave. Uh, Art is back there, and he's got an... Oh, and Russ is on the other side. And so you can drop your offering in as you uh, exit the building. God bless.